Can mom or dad's bank close for real? Not just on Saturdays, where you'd never be able to get access to their assets just to protect them? Stay tuned, you might be surprised. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for, and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello everybody, it's Nancy May with Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. And this is a, uh, well, I always say it's an interesting show, but This one really has my curiosity going, and I'm pretty sure it's going to get yours going, too. My guest today is Philip Van Dorn, who's an investment analyst and reporter with MarketWatch. Now, what does MarketWatch have to do with elder care success? You might be surprised because with all the banking crisis that's going on today and the panic and people pulling money out or putting money in or not sure whether your money's safe at all in banks, I thought it might be important to have this kind of discussion. And yesterday, I actually just had a similar discussion with somebody whose father, not unlike another colleague that I knew, had actually opened up 10 different accounts because he didn't trust the bank to begin with. So when they took over as POA for their dad, they're trying to chase down where the money is hidden. I think it would probably be easier to find the money stuffed in the mattress than it would in 17 different bank accounts. So today we are talking about banking and what that means as far as stability for your folks and where we can help our parents and making sure that they feel comfortable and safe. So thank you, Philip, for joining us. I appreciate it. Very happy to be with you today, Nancy. Let's just jump into the whole issue of how is our money or our parents' money actually protected? I know there, you know, you go into a bank and they say FDIC insured for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per account or is it per person or per family or how does that even work? It can be quite complicated if if the main concern is having every penny protected by the FDIC's insurance. So if you're an individual with one account, your limit really is 250000 within one bank. However, if you also have a joint account and maybe an account in the name of your trust, you can easily get up to a million dollars for a couple with four accounts, two individual accounts, one joint account, and then maybe another 250 in a trust account. So I'm already up to a million and a quarter, and I don't even have a business account. This is why even the banks themselves can only estimate how much of their deposits are insured and uninsured. They don't know unless they know their customer very well. So let me, let me back up. The You said it's $250,000 per individual. Yes. But it's not per individual account. Is that correct? Or It's per relationship. So let's say you and I are married, happily married. And oh, I love I, you, Phil. <laughs> thank you. I have a checking account and a savings account only in my name because I keep some of my money separate. You do the same. Now we have four accounts, but my total will be two hundred and fifty. And yours will be 250 if we have another ah, account so it's really it's per account then it's per relationship so consider these relationships you and i might each individually have a relationship with a bank mm-hmm. you and i may also have a joint account that's three relationships you and i might also have a trust account that's four relationships i just got us up to a million and a quarter 
This is why the best thing to do is to go to the FDIC's website. It's, it's called Your Insured Deposits. So there's a website. I'll put a link in the episode notes so people have that information. When, when you get there, it could be, it might be a little bit tricky, but look for the brochure. So you scroll to the middle of the page and it says PDF. And there's even a large print PDF. Oh. So that's something you can click and print. And it's going to be a heck of a lot easier to read if you take the large print one. And it spells out all of this stuff. And for many people, if we are talking about concern over deposit insurance coverage, I would branch that out into other concerns. Okay. It is possible that a person who's that concerned about deposit insurance coverage in one bank might not be earning as much interest as they could. Especially if it's just a checking or a small savings account or even a CD. If it's a small savings account at your local bank, you can get a much higher interest rate probably with a large bank. For example, this is just an example. Marcus. I'm doing that right now. Marcus by Goldman Sachs is paying 3.75% right now on savings accounts. I believe that Capital One may even beat that, but but several of the largest banks in the U.S. without account minimums are paying close to 4%, where my bank in my town, where I have a small savings account, is paying two basis points, two hundredths of a percent, while Goldman is paying me 3.75%. It's just an example. It's not to promote Goldman. Something for people to think about. But that makes a difference when a parent is concerned about counting well, every penny and, and you're trying to make sure that they don't run about out of assets so that you don't have to pick up their, their bill. Those parents need income. And on 250000 if they're earning 3.75% uh, a year, I don't, e I don't even bother trying to do this in my head because of my uh, limited brain power. Uh, I think it's pretty strong, but... <laughs> it's $9,375 and it's all FDIC insured. So if you put two fifty. In that, in that insured savings account at 3.75, $9,375 in income with arguably low risk. Right. Your risk, of course, is that inflation could run for you higher than that interest rate. And, and of course, there are many other things to talk about if, if you want to earn more. You, you could also go for CDs now. Certificates of deposit rates are easily above 5% if you go out a year, possibly six months, right. if you do a little bit of shopping. Doing this online can require patience, but at least you won't have to drive to the bank branch. And I have found when, when I called a couple of these online banks that they had good telephone service representatives who helped me do everything online without even any paperwork. So we set up the links with my local bank, which I still use for my checking account and day-to-day -day savings. And once that's done, through the other bank's website, I can transfer money back and forth within a day or two and earn more interest. So some people, some savers are worried about insurance, but I want them to earn as much interest as possible at the same time because I know they need the money. It right? doesn't matter how wealthy you are. You have to have income. Right. And $9,000 in the course of a year can cover the cost of care at a facility well, it depends upon the facility uh, <laughs> for for at least a month. Yes. At the lower levels. I mean, everybody sort of knows my story. I took mom and dad out of a care facility, which was charging them and ended up charging them $30,000 a month for low quality care and brought them into a home that we bought. So we had an asset now. 
and then did the round clock care, which cost us close to you know not not quite that much, but you got better care for a team of individuals who were there, and you knew they were there for somebody. So, but that was that was our yeah. choice, and and those choices are very personal. Oh yeah. But the cost of making sure that your money is safe or your parents' money is safe is something that many of us as POAs or financial fiduciaries for parents are concerned about for our own assets, but even more so for theirs. Because like I said, you know, I don't have an extra $30,000 laying around to pick up for mom and dad. And if I did, you know, lucky them. <laughs> some, of, some of your listeners might be in a slightly different situation where the parents who they are caring for may not need the 24 hours. Sometimes things can balance out. Right. They might not need someone overnight if they have someone who can be there eight to 12 hours a day to provide three meals, do the laundry, change the bedding, those things. So even for people who are not particularly wealthy, a balancing act can be performed to get some pretty good quality of life during during that particular stage. At least that's... And you've been going through this yourself yes, with your dad, right? With with my parents. And it's it's been, even though it's a pretty bad situation, they're getting by on eight hours because they have one person, my father, who can supervise. And he's of sound mind, he, he's, but he's stuck in a wheelchair. So he can help by, he can help the caretakers. He can tell them what needs to be done or remind them. He can make a phone call, you know, do what needs to be done. We, we, all, we all try to help each other to try to keep this situation balanced. Because people, even in a middle-class neighborhood, we all have different financial situations. Yep. You can have very wealthy people living next to people of much more limited means, but those people of limited means might still get by in this type of scenario. And it's so much better to be at home than in a facility, as you know better than anyone else. Absolutely. Yeah, they say that even doctors and hospitals don't want you in the hospital as long as they used to be in, day, you know, the, the I'll call it the old days when we were kids. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm feeling it. We'll, we'll leave that age range out of it for now. Yeah. <laughs> but still, but still, you know, there is there is nothing like the comfort of your own home, but safety, and it still comes down to understanding financial safety, which not everybody really is aware of. And one of the discussions that we had earlier before we got on the show was you said that 43. It's estimated that 43 percent of accounts are uninsured. How does that happen? That was a very raw estimate, but it happens in the following way. Uh, let's say you're running a company with hundreds of thousands of employees. Mm -hmm. You might have a relationship with a bank such as Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase or Citigroup through which you are running hundreds of billions of dollars of transactions every year. You're running so many transactions because you have so many vendors who need to be paid millions of customers who are paying you and right. hundreds of hundreds of thousands of employees that you must pay. FDIC insurance has nothing to do with operating capital that's flowing around the world every day. That's not what it's for. It's there to protect you and me for a portion of our personal savings against the possibility that a bank fails. Now a bank may fail through mismanagement or, the, or a bank may fail because of a terrible credit storm, such as the one that began in 2008. Hundreds of banks that were otherwise well-run failed because 
if your entire local real estate market crashes in value, you can't renew any of those loans and the borrowers don't have any cash to put up. So before you know it, you're sitting on a pile of bad commercial real estate loans. So the bankers are not always to blame, although that, you know, sometimes they are. <laughs> We've got to blame somebody. So in this case, I go blame the S uh, was it SVB well, and Signature and the others, but yeah, I'm uh, not on the finger pointing game. Situation. Well, no, no. But, but like 2008, the banks were, were making a bunch of silly loans for years. Right. But if you weren't one of those banks, but you were making local commercial real estate loans here in Florida, you could fail easily, or you might have been forced to sell the bank to a larger one. So what happens? Because I think there's some concern among some folks that, especially in the smaller institutions, forget the big behemoths, you know, the big 800-pound mm -hmm. gorillas, because hopefully if something happens there, they'll be, they'll be saved, like we did back in the past banking and financial crisis. Still, you know, a lot of scrambling if you read any of the books or stories about what happened then. But if the local bank or I'll call even a, a local credit union that somebody might be have their assets in and that fails, is there a difference between a, a small bank and a credit union on how that works or not? There's a difference in who supervises the institution and, insures it? and who insures it. So there's okay. the... The credit unions are supervised either. Well, they're supervised by the National Credit Union Administration. Okay. And they may also be supervised by state regulators, depending on how the credit union was set up. I would imagine that most of them now are federal credit unions. So the NCUA, like the FDIC, mm -hmm. oversees the institutions whose deposits are insured. And they have the same limits as the FDIC. And generally what happens is um, through the monitoring of a bank or credit union's financial statements, the bank examiners, the regulators, mm -hmm. will know if an institution is in trouble. If there's a run on deposits, that's an unusual event, and they'll find out about it because the media will tell them and the institution will tell them because they generally have open communications with their examiners. Generally, an institution will be closed on a Friday, and then it will be possibly reopened the next morning if it has Saturday hours, or it might wait until Monday. But generally speaking, if a failed bank is grabbed by the FDIC or the NCUA, it will reopen immediately, business as usual. There can be uninsured depositors who lose money, but what typically happens is bank fails, government takes over, government either sells that bank or slowly sells off its assets. And what happens to the uninsured depositors is that they don't lose everything. They lose a percentage. That's what we're so seeing now with SVB and some of the others. They made um, the Treasury Department, FDIC, Federal Reserve together, took extraordinary measures with Silicon Valley and Signature Bank of New York, okay. saying that all deposits will be backed for those banks. Whether they're- um, All of them, everyone. Over of them. 250 or, them. or more. Really? Yes. Yep. But and, and doing that may have set up expectations that all deposits will be covered for other bank failures. But mm. one should not assume that. How much money do we have based on taxpayers? Well, the to to back that up. It, it's not covered by the taxpayers. The FDIC's deposit insurance fund was 120 billion as of December 31st, and I do not know the size of the NCUA's deposit insurance fund, but. 
the taxpayers are not on the hook for that, even though the FDIC... Well, that's good to know. Thank you for sharing. Well, the, the taxpayers pay the, the FDIC right. to operate, but the top deposit insurance fund is maintained by the industry. And during this long period where we had no failures, the fund has grown and the assessments have gone down. The FDIC can raise the assessments, especially for the larger banks, mm-hmm. since it's based on asset size, to make up for any shortfall. But there is no shortfall. And I don't think there'll be a problem with this because even for uninsured depositors who took losses, maybe they would take 10% losses. It wouldn't be as much as you might expect it to be. So that's actually good to know. Mom and dad's money is actually safe. I think it is. Even still, I know there are people that had asked me, what, you know, what do you know? I said, well, I'm not a banker. I'm not an analyst. I, I, it's just not my area of expertise. So let's go find somebody. And I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> It was always told in our in our household that your money is safe in the bank, and that's good to know. But when you hear these stories of, of parents who are sprinkling their cash around and anywhere from, geez, one was you know 15 accounts and the other one the other day was 19 different banks because the parent was fearful of it, that obviously, well, mm-hmm. may, maybe not so obviously, comes into other concerns about cognitive capabilities. But it is a generational thing, I think, because there's still a few. Well, I I, my own grandfather... Yeah. Uh, 40 years ago, when the coverage, it was 80 and then 100, he had his money in at least two banks because he wanted it all covered by insurance. Yeah. And he, he did not invest in bonds or in the stock market. So, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there are different approaches. And I'm not critical of any of them. No. Because if you're capable of saving up that much money, you're good at something and your concerns are valid. But I, I did want to mention brokerage accounts because that's something else to think about. Sure. I would imagine your um, listeners are not investing in Bitcoin or any of that stuff. But what we saw with the Bitcoin exchange failures was what I like to refer to as operational risk. Those people who lost money in those bankruptcies lost money because of bad work being done by those companies. It wasn't necessarily that the virtual currencies were bad in and of themselves. It's that all their money was stolen. Yeah. So... That is why if you have a brokerage account, you need to understand that if you own stocks or uh, shares of exchange-traded funds, those can be traded by your broker. So if I hold 100 shares of AT&T in my brokerage account, my broker might lend those shares to a short seller at any time and get a small fee for doing so. I really don't care because if I want to sell my AT&T shares, I will sell them at whatever the fair price is at that day, and the broker will make sure that it gets done. But when you consider that a broker can and will lend your securities out, it is best for your broker to be a reputable firm. You want it to be one of the larger ones, or at least one of the venerable firms. It's just something to um, something to think about. The broker doesn't necessarily have to tell you that they're doing this. Is that correct? That is certainly correct. And if a broker goes bankrupt, the broker is going bankrupt because of problems with its own financials. It has nothing to do with you as the customer, but there have been cases where smaller brokers have gone out of business and securities have been missing from customer accounts. I don't know the reasons. The bottom line is that there's another industry funded support mechanism, which is SIPC. And let me pull that up. Well, that's good to know because, you know, I, I'm not sure that everybody is aware of 
the risks other than there is a risk of being in the market, the investment market. Anyway, well, that's like right. Anyway. You're when you right. Of course, if you buy something, if you buy shares of a company, they could go down to zero yep. if that company goes bankrupt. If you short sell, there's no set limit on how much you could lose. So don't do it. <laughs> but as far as that, this is the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. They have their own website. You're covered up to five hundred thousand dollars which includes 250000 for cash in your account. So Above and beyond your invested assets? Or your, no, your it's 500 including 250 in cash. Oh, so oh, okay. So that shows you if you have a couple of million at a brokerage firm, there is a small potential risk if that firm were to go bankrupt that there would be an operational problem leading to some of your securities being missing. I don't right. expect it to happen. I don't think that when the when the larger ones went belly up, such as Lehman and Bear Stearns in 2008, I don't think any of the brokerage clients lost assets, but I did not research it before this call. That's okay. But in general, I would feel pretty safe at one of the larger ones, such as Morgan Stanley or Schwab or Bank of America, yeah. any of those big ones, I think you would be perfectly fine. But it's something worth knowing about, especially if you're worried about the safety of deposits at a bank. So you're yeah. covered up to 250 at U.S. brokerage firms, that's another thing. Getting back to the Bitcoin and virtual currency nonsense, those companies were all non-U.S. companies, but they all had U.S. customers who lost a lot of money. So know your broker. Make sure it's a U.S. broker. Now, somebody told me the other day, and you probably know this and can either explain it or validate it, that these large investment houses are looking at ways to I'll call it doing doing an underlying shift in how they're managing money and putting a significant amount of I'll call it bet onto Bitcoin or the cryptocurrencies. I can't I can't say that it's Is that any true? I, I don't know do if we, it's true any longer. For one thing, they like this technology. The blockchain technology can be used to track things more efficiently. The technology can be than cash. Well, no, right. it's irrespective of money. You can use this technology to track a pepper back to the farm that it came for from in South mm -hmm. America. So if you have a problem, a food supply problem, you need to know where a tainted supply came from and your Walmart, rather than looking through spreadsheets and paper reports for two weeks, you can use blockchain technology to find out within the hour who grew the darn thing. So there are many wonderful applications. Mm -hmm. But as far as the big banks wanting to shift us all to virtual currencies, they don't. They don't want to do that at all. Okay. <laughs> they like the current setup. Well, that, that's good to know. <laughs> well, the, the banks may actually know more about us than we realize. They better. If you're concerned about privacy and security, guess what? They've known about you for a long time. Yeah. For, well, the, the most important thing, you know, privacy and security, I, I know that the elderly have to be reminded every day. They, they still have landlines, which are rigging off the hook with fake phone calls, trying to get yep. information out of them. So... If you don't want them to call, don't talk to them. Unplug the phone. Call yeah. them first. If someone says they're calling from your bank, they're not. Your bank doesn't call you. It's so simple. And, but people fall for this stuff because people enjoy talking about themselves. Well, and they're trusting. It happened to my dad with an insurance pitch for a car, car protection system. And at one point, you know, I looked at, because I was looking at the bills, and I said, what's this extra $800 for? I was like, 
I don't know what they were out there spending for. They were yeah. in a care facility at the time. I didn't need to use his car that much. Wouldn't have needed it anyway. Yes, car insurance. When I called the company, got a hold of the company, they said, well, your your father is uh, legally um, able, capable of making his own decisions. And I said, yes, he is. He's capable of making his own decisions. But he he didn't know what that was necessarily for. And you made a false pitch. Well, we didn't make a false pitch. So after reading the contract, I said, I'd be happy to talk to our state attorney general office, plus the, you know, the licensing bureau, and how would you like to handle this? Yeah. Your money will be back in your account in, the, in two hours. <laughs> so we took care of it. But, uh, but you're right. There's, there's a lot that goes on, and probably the bank is the, our worst, the least of our concerns. Other than making sure that you know where your parents' assets are yeah, and to make absolutely. sure that they're safe, it's, from it's frightening and more than anything. It, it's just it's incredible how much they need to be reminded of this and how terrible it is that it can even take place, but it does. Yeah. Well, and it can happen to people who aren't so elderly too. Are there any sort of last words or tips that you can recommend when it comes to making sure that a parent or even our own assets? From the basics are well, I, are safe and secure, and that we have a certain level of comfort in knowing that they're not going to walk away. Because most, actually, most families can't afford an, a surprise four hundred dollar bill, which is yeah, really and, and that too. You're talking about um, terrible poverty, which which of course has always existed because it's human nature. There have been various experiments done redistributing wealth, and what you find is within two or three generations, short generations a small number of people wind up holding all the paper. Uh, Augustus tried this with splitting up farms and putting families on equal-sized farms in certain plots. And within 10 years, three farmers owned all the land and the others were all in hock. That's what happens. That's human nature. So we can't protect against terrible financial choices. But we can hope that within families, there's good communications. So my parents always spoke to us about money and about trying to avoid mistakes. And frankly, about limiting expenses. That was the approach that yeah, my parents they took. Too. But then, as adults, we have to be familiar with our parents' finances. We have to have a trusting relationship. That's the first thing. Ass assuming that everyone has goodwill and that we trust each other, then we could do the appropriate things with the help of a, of a, um, a considerate estate planning attorney. I say it that way because the one that we used was so sharp that he provided services that we hadn't thought of asking for. So a family trust mm. was drawn up. Power of attorney was drawn up, which I hadn't remembered to ask for, but we needed it. Then right. my father wanted the home, his home, to be put in the name of the trust. Well, the lawyer took care of that himself by going down to the courthouse and getting it done. So there was various steps in the process where a lawyer limits the customer's work charges a reasonable fee. He came over to the house so that the documents could be signed with witnesses because my parents were no longer yeah. mobile. When I add up all these services and how thoughtful he was, everyone should be doing this because it gives you peace of mind. My, parent, my father runs his own affairs, but when he gets to the point where he wants to hand it over, everything's in place. He set it up that way. You can help your parents to do that. Obviously, it's their decision. But there's so many things that could be set up before there were problems to make things much easier when there are. You were, you were very fortunate as oh, yes. was, was I and my sister and I, because my parents did the same thing. These were types of conversations that we had growing up and knowing where things were and, and who the attorneys were and 
yes, the attorney that handled my parents' estate and set that up came to the house too when we needed them. So, and when changes need to be made, the others are just quite frankly reviewing all those documents every few years, especially when things change. It's you got to make sure that yes, they're protected right to the to the very end, and and that's our role is adult children and, and caregivers and yes. and fiduciaries of those good parents who took care of us. So that's I think what you mentioned about home care is critically important for everyone to learn about. I didn't learn about it until my parents needed the care, but it's so much better than nursing homes. And you meet all these wonderful people who aren't getting paid very much, but they're doing it because they love it. It's really, uh, it's remarkable. So many good things can happen if you if you can swing it, if you can get the care at home rather than in a facility. You're absolutely right. And the, at least that's my bias, the type of respect and consideration that you can give to a an outside caregiver that comes into their home is very different than what's allowed in a care facility. So there again, it's a relationship and a communication that you build with somebody who comes in to provide that type of care and helps you supplement the support that your parents need and makes them feel comfortable so that that they're safe and secure right till that last breath and you have peace of mind as well. Yes, I'm so glad we've done this. And uh... Thank you very much, Phil. I really appreciate this time and the consideration and your ability just to simplify everything for people who might have some concern or some questions. Sometimes the basics, we may know them, but just, we just need to be reassured that, yep, we're, we're, in a, we're in pretty good shape. But as the old adage is, trust but verify, right? Yes, absolutely. That's, <laughs> you said it well. Thank you very much. Thanks, Phil. So if you like the show, do yourself and a friend or family member a favor. Share a link because it's your gift to them and it's free. And yes, this is my gift to you. So thanks for listening in. We'll see you soon, or as I like to say, we'll hear you soon. Bye-bye. All the best. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity, LLC. All rights reserved. Caremanity, LLC.